0: Hi, this is Michael Witts. Renu, how are you doing today?
1: I'm excellent. It's been a bit of a tough few weeks, so I'm looking forward to slowing down.
0: Slowing down. I'm excited to start something new. I love, this is like one of my favorite things to do. This whole idea of having this show with you, Innovation Undercover, is so exciting for me. I've been chatting with people about this for like the last month. I'm not kidding. And just telling them (laughs) we're going to do this. I couldn't be more excited. And to start off, who's our first guest?
1: Oh, I'm so happy to introduce our first guest. She's a great friend oh, wow. and she's the co-founder and CEO of Anansi. And that's Megan Walker. Megan, so happy to have you on the show. Welcome.
2: Well, thanks, René. Thanks for the introduction. I'm really excited to be here.
0: That is awesome. And before we get into the, it's a pleasure to meet you and see you again. I guess we've spoken a couple of times already. Megan, before we jump into the main part of the conversation, just for our listeners, can we get a bit of your background for some context? Yeah,
2: sure. So, um, I mean, I can also just Give you a little bit of background on the Nancy as well but Please. um you know I can start with my, my personal background so oh. I worked in finance for about six years as in venture capital mainly investing in clean technology and industrial efficiency um, so a lot of the technologies we're investing in were things like telematic systems home energy management and uh, and tools such as that many of which are actually now being used in the insurance industry yeah um, I left that because I wanted to I got really passionate about data science and how data could be used to improve industrial industrial processes. And that's where I stumbled across the insurance industry, which is what led to uh, the founding of Nancy
0: But what does that mean, stumbled into the insurance industry?
2: Stumbled well, this seems, upon a very, it? this seems a very common way to get into the insurance industry. It, <laughs> does it does often it? picks you rather than the other way around. <laughs> I've heard this from many people.
0: <laughs> but what, but how, does it, how does that happen, right? In other words, I get the interest in data and the telematics, this whole idea of like how to Devices and connected devices provide data and help make industrial processes more efficient. But when you're doing that, where does insurance kind of pop in?
2: Well, that's the most interesting thing about insurance because effectively it's all about data. I mean, the whole industry is underpinned by by data, and you know there's this huge untapped opportunity to. You know, bring the you know, the connected data or this continuous data which is now available to really transform insurance products and you know make them fit for the future
0: when you go back and look at the experience you had as an investor was part of the reason for jumping out and starting anansi this idea that you thought that enough had changed with compute and throughput and that we were at an inflection point where the amount of data and what we could do with that data was then in the end going to change the way insurance was underwritten and driven
2: Yeah, 100%. So it's a combination of the availability of data, and our ability to harness that through, you know, all these new big data tools and systems. And also, the industry is now warmed up to actually using that data in, you know, the onboarding process for products, and also, most importantly, in the claims process, you know, because effectively, claims is the shop window for insurance. So, you know, it's not just about how you can make it easier for customers to actually get the insurance products in the first place, right. it's also vitally important how you can tap into data to improve the whole claims adjustment process. And then also, you know, through open banking, you know, make that claims receipt as smooth and seamless as possible.
0: Open banking. Can I ask you this too? I was on a call earlier today with somebody and he talked to me, I want to get this terminology right, about the relevance of data. Right. So we talk a lot in the engineering space about minimizing noise and amplifying signals. So when you're looking at all this data and you know, the more devices that are out there, the more data we get, how do you go about determining which data is relevant and which data is just noise?
2: I mean, that's a really important point, because effectively, the difference is whether the data is structured or unstructured. Go ahead. So to have data, which is a signal, you know, a structured data trumps anything else. And I think that's one of the beauties of the, you know, the fact that we're working directly with e-commerce platforms and logistics partners is we're actually tapping into a very structured data set to inform our insurance product. I mean, it's a very different challenge if you want to use you know, unstructured text or, you know, the things that people, you know, voice commands or whatever. I mean, that's, that's, almost an unsolvable problem at the moment, (laughs) but we will get there. But, you know, we're starting much more simply and actually in insurance terms, that's already a big step from actually filling in your insurance forms online and effectively providing structured data. The step we're taking is to go from you as an insurance customer having to fill in a form to provide them a structured data to you as a customer giving us access to your platform. So we draw the structured data directly from your business or, or from a platform or tool.
1: So, Megan, as an InsurTech founder myself, this is, I think we understand this is a really hard journey. And I, as a single founder, I have done, I am still doing this by myself. And I know my NMC's experience is different. You have a big team, you have co-founders. Maybe you can walk us through the journey a bit, how you got there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I do have a co-founder. I I really admire anyone who's a solo founder of of any business, because I think having a co-founder is definitely what helps to get you through some of the tough times that, you know, as a founder, you will always experience. So, um, so my co-founder Anna, I met when I was in London, and she actually comes from a fintech background. So she was one of the early developers at Money Farm, which is a sort of banking application, sort of investment application rather. And she's also worked uh, for conventional uh, banks in the sort of technology t- team. So she was really excited, you know, to bring some of the learnings from conventional fintechs into the insurtech space. And uh, yeah, that's that's some of her background. So, how big is your team now? Uh, We are seven people. So yes, so there's myself and my co-founder. Everyone is effectively a department. So we have a person (laughs) who is responsible for insurance, a person responsible for partnerships, marketing person, and then we have some some developers supporting Anna and building, actually building the platform as well.
0: Was becoming an entrepreneur something that you had always considered? Like you said, this thing I kind of fell into the insurance industry. Do you feel like you fell into entrepreneurship too, or do you come from? an entrepreneur, a family, you know, it's like your brother, your sister, an entrepreneur, your parents, entrepreneurs. Is this something where when you left, I'm putting it in quotes, right? Like your job, your family was like, whoa, whoa, slow down. What are you doing? Kind of thing. You know what I mean?
2: No, actually, I do come from an entrepreneurial family. Yeah, so, yeah, my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, yeah, everyone has been entrepreneurs (laughs) in my family, (laughs) but it actually wasn't something I actually considered. So, uh, you know, earlier in my career, I guess I was more focused on, you know, a corporate job, and I was working in VC, and actually, it was working in finance alongside some really inspirational entrepreneurs that actually made me believe that, you know, maybe I could strike out (laughs) on my own and and do this. So, you know, actually, it was that experience which gave me the confidence to to found my own uh, business you know obviously in partnership with with Anna I'm so
1: curious um being you know you've been on the VC side and now you're on the other side of actually being able to raise money is do you is there a difference do you sense a difference from when you started and the journey where you are now
2: I mean it, yes, it's very, very different. So when I was working in finance, I was working, um, I guess we were investing, you know, from Series A onwards. So, you know, we had a particular focus. We didn't actually spend so much time in the sort of the phase of the business that we've been in so far, which is the pre seed and seed, actually getting the business off the ground. So, you know, so so really, you know, we've learned that now. And then I guess as the business progresses, we'll, we'll get closer to, you know, the, the area of business that I, I understand a bit more. But you know, it's interesting to see where we going and it's very interesting to having seen closely how other businesses have managed to scale really fast because effectively all VC-backed businesses are are aiming to be you know venture scale which is you know the potential to become you know billion dollar multi-billion dollar businesses and you can only do that if you have a a business model or a strategy which enables you to scale really quickly.
0: So what does that look like to you?
2: So I mean I mean I guess what that looks like to us in insurance is you know because this is a data effectively a data driven um, product, right, and it's you know it's sort of it's a very scalable product in itself because our whole process is very automated. So you know we've taken a lot of the administration out of of what we're doing. So you know just to give you a bit of background, you know, we're um, building a goods in transit insurance product. So we're seeking to make goods in transit insurance faster, fairer, and more flexible for e-commerce businesses and you know businesses doing shipping. So effectively you know, the whole onboarding process is pretty much automated by our process. We then track all the parcels using our platform and the third-party tracking data, and we process the claims for delayed and lost parcels parametrically so again this is just based on the data that we're receiving around the parcels and then for damage we you know it's, it's a really simple process of submitting a photo so there's a lot of admin which has just been lifted out of out of the whole product so that's the first step scalability and then the second step is to really look at you know the go to market strategy and you know how you can acquire customers as efficiently as possible in order to grow.
0: Can we go through the first part of that first, if you don't mind? Yes, sure. Can you walk me through? Like I'm a process person. When I was at Morgan Stanley, I literally went through and looked at every single process that a particular business was doing. And I said, okay, this part can be automated. That part needs to be manual. This can be automated. And I literally took something that took a day and a half to do and turned it into something that took an hour to do. And everybody thought I was a wizard. Of course, it was back in the 1930s, so it seemed a little bit more wizardry back then than it would be today. (laughs) But But- The only way to do that was to map it out, like step by step. And I really want to understand, like, first of all, why you attacked this thing, parcels in, what did you say? Goods in transit. It's so interesting, right? Because before, and parametric obviously falls into this category, but you couldn't do this before, right? Because you weren't able to track things parametrically. I'm curious how exactly that works, if you don't mind, right? In other words, if I order something, you said you partner with some e-commerce companies, what had to like, what did you look at? And then what had to change to to actually affect this to make it happen?
2: Okay. Well, I'll start with how, why we chose this problem. So yeah. around the time where I stumbled across the insurance industry, I actually also had an e-commerce side project around the same time. <laughs> so, and I could see at that time, there was this whole macro trend emerging of, you know, people wanting to sell physical products online yep. through Shopify and Amazon and all these uh, platforms. I mean, Shopify extremely inspirational you know founding story where you know they i think they were trying to buy a surfboard and they ended up building shopify as a platform to you know facilitate the selling selling of surfboards right. much more efficiently and you know effectively you know you or i could set up a shopify store within the next 20 minutes and start selling you know whatever you right. know we can then embed sort of five or six apps so we can automate all of the like a lot of processes around the store so you could have a connection from your shopify store to your warehouse which is where you're storing your yep. surfboards often you'll add a tool to you know communicate how many surfboards you're selling to your bank so you'll be able to do all the accounting automatically you'll also add something for customer service and you know so effectively all these big thing parts of the business which would have previously been done by a whole team of people are basically all being done by you sitting in your kitchen and all these various apps and yet, when it came to insurance, you know, you still, you know, have to get well. Even now, to be honest, outside of our product, <laughs> you know, you start to often go somewhere, find a form, you know, you know, transfer data that you're already sharing with four or five different businesses. Input that into your insurance form, and then there's no data connection between the insurance product and you know how what's actually live in your business at the moment.
0: Right. So this is this is actually super interesting. So if you think about Shopify as a platform. Mm -hmm. right? It's built this really robust platform to be able to do e-commerce, but they've basically made this decision, I think that says, and I'm using Shopify as an example. Yeah. Not the only example that says we have all this functionality, but we can't build it all fast enough. Shogun is the perfect example of this, right? Where they built this page builder and this site builder, and then raised some money at like a $750 million valuation. But there's an ecosystem that's getting built around Shopify and other e-commerce providers that have figured out if we're a platform people will connect to us, and then those businesses can then thrive on top of our thriving business. So is that how you're looking at this? these types of partnerships where you plug into all these platforms, indifferent to the platform itself, and then can, oh, I'm going to use the word, embed the insurance product into that whole experience as well?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no one wakes up in the morning wanting to buy insurance. You know, it's, it's it's not the key part of anyone's business. So rather than people having to go to find the insurance somewhere, we're bringing the insurance where they already are and where right. it's most relevant to their business. Yep. And that could be, you know, with Shopify and the platform. It could be with the warehouses. So we're getting a lot of interest from the logistics partners where people store their items. Um, It could be with the e-commerce software. So the software that manages these warehouses, you know, it could be shipping APIs who are managing the communication between the, the courier um, companies and the e-commerce businesses themselves. So there's various different parts of this ecosystem all trying to solve this problem of, you know, you as a store want to get your item from A to B as right. you know, efficiently as possible. And if something happens, as long as we have the data, we can you know, plug in to, to wherever is relevant. Effectively.
0: And how long has Anansi been around?
2: So, as Renu well knows, insurance is a very difficult industry to get a business started in. So, I mean, so actually, so so actually, we met in 2018, didn't we, yes, originally? Yes, yes, um, yes. And at that stage, we were looking at, uh, we weren't even looking at this idea. We, we were looking at how we could work with insurance companies to support them in improving how they go about selling small business insurance. So, this was, you know, which is a fascinating project, but, you know, for definitely a first iteration and a Way just to you know get a window into how conventional insurance is, is being sold. Mm. You know, then we've gone through a process. Uh, then I think, guess the key part of getting an insuretech startup off the ground, especially if you want to bring your own insurance products to market, is getting insurance capacity. Yeah, so it's basically taken a long time. We've been in a sort of a pre-launch phase where we've launched part of the product, and we literally now are just about to launch the the full product. Actually, in the next uh, yeah week or so, with a with a mm. you know with our a new insurance partner. So it's really exciting.
0: Okay. Renu, if you want to say something, just let me finish this thought, and then you can jump in. But this idea of getting capacity, right, is very well understood by people that are in the insurance industry. But this idea of convincing somebody, if you're not an MGA, right, mm-hmm. of convincing someone to just underwrite the risk takes so much time. I mean, I can say it because I'm not involved in building my own insure tech. And even after it feels like you have approval, you might not, like until the, you know, the what do we say? The, the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Like you don't really know if you have it. And I'm sure there are a bunch of fits and starts about this. I'm super curious. The reason why I asked how long it was around, right? It's because I'm always interested in the development of a new product, like going to a warehouse and just saying, you know, you could insure some of this stuff parametrically. So as soon as something bad happens, you're automatically, so you have to connect to the data. And as soon as something bad happens, you get a payout. And then you can get a further payout if you have indemnity insurance as well, right? This idea of para-indemnity and the same thing for the shippers, all this other stuff. I'm always curious what their reaction is when you and your team show up and say, have you thought about this kind of thing? You know what I mean?
2: So, I mean, I guess there are two levels to the sales. So the first is to the warehouse business, which already works with many of these merchants. And I guess the second level is the actual policy holder, which will be the the merchants who are, are working with this warehouse. Right. So when we go to a warehouse um, for example you know in the UK I mean many of these businesses have been you know, working in this logistics space for sort of 20 years yeah. so they well know the, the key problems that you know they and their customers face around you know the cost of you know, conventional insurance you know, it can be five percent of the of the cart value you know the fact that you know if something goes wrong if your item is lost or delayed you only get the cost price back. Uh, which is, you know, which means you make a loss even even after you've gone through the whole process of, of claiming, Right. the time it can take, you know, to claim and, you know, just that the whole intricacies um, around the, the process. It's it's not, it, you know, it, it's not an easy process and it's, it's a source of significant frustration for our customers. So when you come to them and just try and make it as simple as possible, because I think, you know, is it indemnity insurance? Is it all the You know, there are all this jargon in the insurance right. industry. So <laughs> effectively, what is the underlying Problem, you know, item is going from A to B. Has it been delayed, lost, or or, or uh, damaged? And you know, just having a flat price so you can predict, you know, or you can basically quantify what is this insurance going to cost. I mean, that's a huge step forward in in just having an understandable product, right. and you know, then having very clear milestones because we are doing you know a lot of the the claims parametrically for you know when is this uh, going to be confirmed as a, a delay? When will it be confirmed as a loss? And just having confidence you'll get the full retail value you know, when something is, is lost. You know, it goes a long way to, to giving people confidence just to try this because there isn't anything even remotely uh, similar on, on the market anyway. And the fact right. that then it, you know, we're taking away the admin by plugging into their systems, you know, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really.
0: It is, but it fe- in some ways, it feels like it's... you know, A lot of people want to have control over every part of their process, right? And as soon as you introduce this idea of it's parametric, in other words, it just happens in the background... I think it takes people some time to get used to this idea that yeah, it just it just takes care of itself in a way,
2: yeah. Yeah, I think so, but I think it's just time. I, I mean, as <laughs> I, I, I said, I mean, there are so many things to do. You know, if you're you know just a small team running a you know an e-commerce business, you know, I think the main focus is is really around you know actually. You know, getting in front of enough people, you know, all the marketing side of things is hugely time consuming, Very. you know, how you can do that efficiently. And, you know, the key thing is reviews, you know, negative reviews really damage these products and, you know, 77% of negative reviews relate to shipping issues. So anything that you can do to, to make that whole process smoother is is really, uh, you know, necessary so that they can just really focus on, you know, the bits of the business they want, they need to be focusing on rather than, you
1: know, admin.
0: Got it.
1: So a question, in the beginning, a lot of the efforts, as you mentioned, is on getting capacities, on sales, marketing. When do you see the benefits of, like, say, a full-on data science team coming on? At what stage, like you say, you have a team that you can fully harness the data that that you have been collecting? Mm -hmm.
2: So um, I guess at the moment, so, you know, so... We will. I guess the next step for us will be to bring our claims. So we're bringing claims in in house. We, so we, we're just about to to bring a, a claims manager into the team. Wow. And when we, you know, in the expectation that we're going to be having lots of claims with our first few (laughs) few contracts, and then effectively, you know, we're going to start seeing a lot of, you know, pretty quickly, a lot of data coming through, you know, with our first, you know, um, four to five um, partnerships, effectively, Mm -hmm. we're going to be setting up a policy management system. And we have, we work with HubSpot um, for all the sort of customer information. And that's really when you know, I guess when we get when we we'll start having issues uh, uh, I think very quickly around you know how we manage that how we get the most out of it and because we're dealing with a lot of the claims parametrically how do we monitor the trends um mm-hmm. between you know lot, is the loss ratio in line what we want do we need to adjust for certain partners or certain customers so yeah there's definitely going to be very quickly uh, you know quite a, a data requirement within within the business effectively i don't know whether we'll outsource that but we definitely will have um, some work that would need to be done
1: for sure and what's your vision for Nancy say in the next five years what would you want it to be so, I mean, what we
2: really want to be is a sort of category leader within goods and transit insurance. So we see the last mile where we're focusing on as the starting point, but we definitely want to very quickly um, expand it, you know, internationally with the product that we have and
1: mm-hmm. also move
2: up the value chain so that we start working with larger and more valuable freight cargoes. So up mm-hmm. to the sort of the, the hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of shipments. So we'll be doing a mixture of working directly with retailers and warehouses and those, you know, where we are, but just scaling up across those partners and then also moving you know to the more specialist uh, freight market where it's you know businesses shipping items from a to b in you know significant quantities and effectively what's interesting in the insurance industry is it's just the same process but it will just be you know some tweaks to the data sets and you know how we work with customers but you know in in terms of this, the mechanics it's not really that dissimilar
0: there have been a lot of discussions recently around supply chain issues and how involved will you get at that level into the international supply chain as partnerships but also as customers as well?
2: We will very quickly be getting um, involved in that. so with the new product that we're, we're just launching, we will be covering international shipments as well okay. and you know one of the key lockers or delays at the moment are customs delays um, and the and the and the issues that especially post Brexit, not even just with brexit there's all sorts of you know trade barriers that have been going up in various different parts of of the world and the issue there is you know what can we do you know we can't do anything about you know what happens in customs or you know taxes or or any of that but what we can do is to support our customers and making sure they have the right documentation for the right parcel and there's actually a a really exciting business called hurricane e-commerce and that's exactly what they do they basically have sort of digitized this whole customs process so you can you know integrate their api and use that to basically inform your customers whether they have got everything they need or whether they need to you know amend some of the documents and then you can then el- eliminate delays which are caused by bad documentation. And then you just end up with your pure kind of customs delays, which you're know you you're not going to be able to get rid of.
0: So there's a big business in the UK. I'm trying to remember the name of it that I had on my e-commerce show. I think it's called GE e-commerce. I can't remember what it's called, but basically their whole business is around helping Non-European or non-UK e-commerce companies move their business into Europe.
2: Mm, yes.
0: Yeah, and that seems like an ideal partner for you, right? Because yeah. all of their clients are your potential clients. I think.
2: Do you know what I mean? Yes, because potentially. They're, they're yeah. So, so yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess the one thing that differentiates the partners that we can work with is whether they have access to data from the companies they work with. So that's why mm-hmm. I guess why we started with logistics partners yep. because we're able to see, you know, when. As an item left the warehouse and that's the key vector for us in terms of when we issue a policy. Right. So, um, but yeah, definitely we can get int- introducer or refer agreements from others, but you know, we're, we're trying to work with kind of ecosystems where, where where the data connection sort of supports the product as it were.
0: Yeah. Sorry. The name of that company is global e-commerce experts, but go ahead, Renu. Sorry.
1: So no, your path of expansion really follows the path of data wherever there is data.
2: Yes, exactly. I yes. love that.
1: <laughs> I <know. laughs> and so that also means that, you know, when it comes to data, sometimes you have to, um, you pull, like you make stuff when there is data. But here, I actually see a strong use case where you're going and pushing for sectors to give you data so that you can grow. And it takes a long period of time. But from where where my head is at, I want, when we say something has to be data-driven, eventually I want like efforts like yours to actually push for data rather than pull for it. And so I I think, because I think that, you know, moving away from where you are, look to a traditional insurance setup, I believe at that point there was so much of data, but they don't really utilize it. And now because you are a startup and you're very uh, flexible with the use of technology, you can actually really utilize data. And uh, so I, I I am very much Uh, inspired by your vision and I, I love that but then my favorite question is insurance is so slow how do you deal with it?
2: <laughs> I mean, I think that I think it, it is what it is, you know. So it, it's similar to what Michael said before that you know you can think you've got a capacity and then something happens, and then you know there's a whole nother month of things you didn't even know you needed to do that somehow need to need to happen. So you just have to go through through the process. And you know, it's really vitally important to to find the right partner who also understands that you know we're coming at this from very different angles. You know, you've got a very traditional industry, well, risk averse for obvious reasons in industry. And then you have startups who are coming in who kind of just want to sort of test something and then keep iterating over time. And, it, you know, it takes some time to feel comfortable with that approach because yeah. you don't want to, to take a risk. You know, we end up, you know, maybe losing, you know, a lot of capacity or, you know, you're, you're not really aligned. So, you know, we, we've just gone through that that process of, of getting comfortable, you know, on both sides, you know, this, this is the right partner to work with. And, you know, obviously, we're super grateful, you know, that we have investors who believe in the vision, and they've been prepared to work through this, this phase, and, you know, help us, you know, get the people in place in order to to get through this so that we can, you know, have this this launch. And then, you know, obviously, the key thing that gets you through is your customers, you know, the fact that we have demand, you know, from partners, you know, and from merchants who don't have you know many alternatives, you it really keeps you going going you know, in terms of you know, getting, getting to, to delivering that as well.
1: So coming back to one of the things you mentioned, which is also a favorite topic of mine, which is investors. Um, I think that the sales cycle for insurance is so long that you, I believe that you need investors, but you also need investors that actually really understand insurance. Um, that's what I've seen. Is that what you've seen? Yeah,
2: 100%. Yeah, I think it's very, it's a very different proposition to invest in an insurtech company compared to a conventional B2B SaaS business. You know, you could just set up a SaaS business tomorrow and start trading or, you know, getting revenue, you know, whatever. But that's just, simply not possible within insurance, you're going to have to have a period of time where, you know, you actually build some infrastructure, you know, in the in advance of of getting the insurance capacity. And I think that's perfectly possible if you have a, you know, a a go to market strategy, which enable you to very clearly be able to identify where you're going to be able to get your you know where you're going with this business mm-hmm. in terms of you know revenue and, and partners and and what that's that's going to look like and yeah I, I definitely totally agree that having insurance um Insurance industry angels. Um, as part of that, gives you a lot more credibility when you go and speak to, to mainstream investors. And you know, we've been super, um, you know, lucky and, and grateful for the support of um, you know some of some really high profile insurance um, industry angels um, that really supported us. Uh, you know, with with closing our, our pre seed round.
0: Can I ask this? What do you mean by insurance angels? Does this mean like are there venture capitalists involved in the funding as well? Or is it, it oh, there are, go ahead. I'm really curious.
2: Yeah, we closed the pre-seed rounds of $2 million um, in uh, last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that stage, we were backed um, by so Octopus Ventures um, was the was the mm-hmm. um, you know they're a multi stage VC fund that you know they go very from very early stage right the way through. They were they led the rounds, but you know the people who were also participating were you know, people like um, Evelyn Burke, who is the former CEO of Boopa, which is a life insurance business, and um, we had um, uh, Andrew Rear, who is the former CEO of Munich Re Digital Partners. Um, we had um a couple of senior execs who um have worked with Marsh Insurance. Yep. Um and also, you know, so so th- those sorts of people mm-hmm. and those a lot of those are uh, our investors were angel investors in a company called Many Pets, which is an insure tech unicorn, and they've been super successful. So, you know, not right. only would they be able to advise us from their experience of you know 20, 30 years of in the insurance industry, but also from having seen the journey of many pets over the last five years from Series A right the way through to you know being a unicorn and you know, being in multiple jurisdictions with this, you know, best in class pet insurance products.
0: I'm really glad that you pointed out the individual people that did this, because that was the whole point of asking this question, is that at the earliest stages of development of a company, regardless of whether you're raising $2 million, which is amazing, by the way. So congratulations for that, because that's hard work. Like it's, those yes. are hard yards, right? Regardless, or raising $200 million. But the point is that, At the earliest stages of the development or the building of any company, it's really just an experiment, right? And I like to say that angel investors are funding an experiment and that experiment can take time and it can take iterations and they need to be patient, right? So a company like Octopus that's multi-stage realizes, hey, if it's pre-seed, we know what we're getting, right? And it may take 18 months or more to get sales. We know that. And we're not going to give money and then two months later say, where are the sales? Because it doesn't make any sense, right? Mm -hmm. But you're smiling, right? But there is a part of the venture capital world that 100%. doesn't understand that. Sorry, go ahead.
2: No, that's absolutely, you know, we've definitely spoken to, you know, we'd obviously spoke to a number of investors before sure. we welcomed Octopus into the round. And you know, people do say to you, well, you know, why haven't you already got 5,000 right. where's your traction premium and you're and, like- yeah, every month? and. <laughs> So uh, no, it's it's just a different thing. But I mean, obviously, we still want to be a venture style business. So I get it. You know, we want to have a pathway where we will be able to get that level of of uh, of traction, you know, through the the partnerships and the strategy that we have. Because right. you know, on the flip side of things, you know, we're well aware there are other insurtechs that have gone through this process and they haven't got the traction they were hoping. And then you know that that hasn't been you know so good an outcome for the investors either after after this pre-seed stage.
0: But it sounds to me, based on what you've said and the points that Renault have made as well, you're building into demand, right? You're not not building into a maybe, you're building into demand. People out there saying, oh, this is a product we need. And then you're saying, yeah, we're building into this. And that's actually fun, right? Because you get to iterate saying, this is what you need, tweak it like this, fix it like that. And then the more you do that, the more those partnerships on the business side bear fruit, but the more that the capacity providers can see, now we can understand this risk better, better as more of that data comes in too. So it works both ways, yeah?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good summary of, of what we're working with.
0: Well, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Um, <laughs> did I, did, I, was, I just lost my train of thought. Did I miss anything else, Megan, that you wanted to mention or can we just thank you for being on the show
1: today? I uh, no. Go ahead,
0: go ahead, go ahead.
1: Well, you know, this is a topic that we all talk about, especially as female founders, about how hard it is to get investment because of your gender. Um, I always want to know, is that, was that your experience? And uh, is there anything that you've seen in the female founders that you would like to caution, warn, so that we can deal with this differently?
2: I mean, Definitely, um, we are two female founders, so we're definitely in a very small minority. You know, we're ethnic minorities, and you know, also both female founders. So you know, we had some very interesting experiences <laughs> during our, our fundraise. Nowhere near as bad as. Some people that you read about but you know we definitely had our, our ups and downs during during the fundraising um, process I mean I think the main thing that I would say to, to you know to, to female founders you know you often hear that you know that founders female founders get asked you know a different type of question to, to male yeah. founders so yeah. male founders are asked about promotion or how big this could be and female founders are more about asked more about prevention and you know what could go wrong wrong with this sort of thing so I mean I think you know first bit of advice is just always Ways, just talk about the big vision don't don't be sort of afraid to have a really big vision and be ambitious even if you think people are going to laugh at you or you know just you know just make how how big is this be because you know when you speak to investors they want to be inspired and excited about you know what you're building right i mean i think the second bit of advice i would give is don't be afraid to cold email people or you know you know cold cold um approach people so one of our um you know most um supportive investors is a guy called Chris Adelsbach, who is the you know, UK Business Angel um, of the Year. He's you know he he's you know he's extremely successful entrepreneur in his own right and then he used to run tech stars in the UK and now he's invested in a, a huge variety of, of fintech startups some of which have gone on to be extremely successful in a very rapid period of time and we just emailed him just to say look we saw that you just had a big up for one of your portfolio companies you should have a look at what we're doing and and you know he invested and he's right. then introduced wow. us to so many uh helpful people along along the way so uh yeah that's another bit of advice I would give
0: yeah I mean this Mm -hmm. falls into the category that I like to call you'd never get anything that you don't ask for and it's this whole concept I have of you're already at no before you ask Mm -hmm. so if the only if the answer to your question is no well that's where you are when you ask the question so why do you care does that make sense
2: (laughs) yeah you didn't you're not going to lose anything effectively nothing
0: yeah, I always say no doubt. But
2: also, how cool is that? Like, I mean, the guy awesome, probably gets how many emails? You know, he's got mm-hmm. however many portfolio companies, and he will just reply. And he replied really quickly. It was like within <laughs> an hour or something. <laughs> but you
0: know what? You know what else is really interesting about this too? And again, tell me if I'm wrong here. Sometimes people will look at you and just think, already successful, probably doesn't need my help, and they. Maybe they're not there waiting for you to reach out to them, but they're just thinking, I can't contact them. They've probably already fun. Do you know what I mean? Where they're looking and just go, you, you're laughing, but but you'd be surprised because if you exude a certain amount of confidence, people will just look and say, well, I'm not going to ask them because it'll be really embarrassing if they go, we've already raised. Do you know what I mean?
1: I don't you know think I'm experienced. Like that?
0: That. Oh, <laughs> but, but you don't know that. You don't know that, right? That is, you're,
2: you're,
1: that is fair. <laughs>
0: No, but you, you, you don't know that, right? Because you don't know that people haven't seen this like confidence, this appearance of confidence that you have and have them figure out, maybe she's fine. like Maybe she doesn't need my help kind of thing. It's, it's a really weird thing. So it goes both ways, I think, at some level. Anyway, <laughs> just my humble opinion. <laughs> Can I ask you one more thing before I let you go? Sure. I love this idea of coming from an entrepreneurial family. Right. Because it's such, a, it's such a unique thing in a way. And I don't know about you, but I never thought about it when I was a kid, but like my grandfather started his own business. He funded his first son's business. My dad quit his job because he was completely unemployable because he couldn't get along with anybody and then started his own business. But I never thought about it. And to be fair, when I was a kid, I thought, Jesus, dad, you couldn't even keep a job. But the reality was it was better to have your own business and you went corporate first, but you think at some point, you know, Grandpa and your dad were just like waiting and watching because they know who you are. Do you know what I mean? Like they know how smart you are. Just wait, they know your personality. They were just like, go. And then you, you know what I
2: mean? Yeah, probably to be honest. Because when yeah. I was younger, I would never have imagined that I would, I would do do anything <laughs> like this. <Really? laughs> you know, often you want to sort of, you know, rebel by doing the opposite.
1: But, yeah, maybe. yeah. <laughs> Oh,
0: I don't know. They must be super proud. Um. Anything else, Renu?
1: No, I. this has been so wonderful. And especially because when I've seen a Megan's journey, which started along with mine, and I went to the US, came back and she kept at it. They kept at it. Yeah, It inspires me.
0: I think it's awesome. Okay, let's thank you. Thank you, Megan Bingham Walker, a co-founder and the CEO at Anansi. That was awesome.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good luck with this podcast.
1: <laughs> thank you.